The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We just completed working our way through Matthew chapter 3, a four-week part, a four-week study in baptism. And we are this morning beginning a three-week study in spiritual warfare, specifically temptation. First one, we're going to read all of the uh, temptations this morning. We're going to go all the way through verse 11, and uh, then we'll pray and we'll get to work. We're just going to be focusing this morning specifically on verses 1 through 4. So, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after, four, sorry, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we just thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the price that we owe enduring the agony that we deserved to endure, and just completely paying everything for us, God, paving the way so that we could become sons and daughters of the Most High. And Father, I just pray this morning that you would speak through this text to the reality that we are not home yet, that we live in a broken and fallen world, and that there is an angry, mean Satan on the prowl, looking to destroy us, looking to hurt us at every turn. I pray, God, that we would be sobered this morning to that reality, and that we would turn our attention to your son, we would see how he withstood the enemy, and that we would follow his example and do likewise. God, give us the strength to be true only to you, and to say no to the temptations. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, as I started, there's a world of difference between the typical member of Bridge Baptist Church, a world of difference. Some of us are welder fabricators, some of us sit in office all day and do accounting, some of us work in hospitals, some of us uh, work at mines, some of us are engineers, some of us are lawyers. It, we're all different. Some of us are stay-at-home moms. The, the typical day of, in the life of a Bridge Baptist is going to look different from one person to the next. We're all going to have different, different days, totally different ways of going about and doing things. But... In the course and in the pursuit of our days, even though we're all going to do things differently, we're all going to have slightly different schedules, slightly different uh, tasks that we need to be about from our nine to five, it's not uncommon that 
in the pursuit of every single day, we will find ourselves on some occasion having to run some errands, do some tasks, cross off some of those honeydew checklist items. And so I just want you to stop for a minute and just picture the day, in, the average day in the life of a, of a Bridge Baptist and what that would look like. Picture yourself perhaps walking down the street on Victoria Street, maybe doing a little bit of window shopping. You've got some things you need to pick up for your kids. You've got some groceries you need to buy for dinner tonight. You're passing people along, pedestrians. Maybe you run into somebody you know. You say, hello, how's it going? You, you maybe stop and chat for a second. Maybe you stop and get a quick bite to eat at one of the delis. And you're just going along about your day. You come up to an intersection you stop there at the crosswalk you're waiting for the light to change and just when you're about to step into the intersection suddenly <laughs> Levi that wasn't as fast as I was hoping but that you still did good you still did good <laughs> what a lion loose in the streets what is this I'm in Kamloops I'm walking down Victoria Street where did he come from? It's not something you expect to find. That is a real recording of a line, by the way. I was, uh, for Kyla's wedding, we were in, uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, Shanti and I had the opportunity to visit the, the zoo there, and had the opportunity to hear, to, to see actual lions from Africa, and had the opportunity to, you know, he got a little disgruntled at one point and roared at us. Did you know that the sound of a lion's roar can be heard from up to five miles away? The little audio soundbite we played for you is pathetic compared to what an actual lion sounds like. We heard this lion roar in New Mexico at the zoo there in Albuquerque. And I tell you, it made my blood run cold. This is a mean, powerful, strong animal. It's something you'd expect to find in the uh, Saharan interior of Africa, in the jungles there. It's not something you'd expect to find here in the urban jungle. But here's the truth. Satan prowls everywhere. He roams everywhere. And the scripture says, it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, that he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is hungry. He craves to kill you. And he is just waiting for that opportunity to get at you. Two, two passages of scripture, two elements of wisdom come to mind this morning as we consider this text. And I pray that you'll meditate on both of these. The first one is Proverbs one twenty two: How long, O simple ones, will you delight in being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And then from Proverbs 14.12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, the Marines, before they go into battle, they have what's called a, a tactical safety briefing. Anytime you're getting ready to go to war, you're going to sit back and you're going to sit there and your platoon commander, your company commander, whoever it is, they're going to sit down, they're going to give you a safety briefing. And you're, I'm sure you're all sitting there wondering, okay, you're going into battle, a safety briefing? Yet that's what it's called, a safety briefing. This briefing will include a number of things. It'll talk to you about some of the tactics you can expect to face from your opposition. It'll focus on the terrain different types of wildlife that you might encounter, snakes, insects, things that are poisonous, uh, things that you don't need to really pay attention to. It'll be an all-encompassing kind of game plan to what you're going to encounter that day as you get ready to go to battle. Now, if you disregard the safety briefing, if you disregard the tactical safety briefing, you will not be on the same page as every other member in the platoon, and you'll be completely uninformed as to what the enemy is going to do in your life. 
So I know that this is a bit more serious subject than what we typically encounter here, but let's take caution this morning. Let us approach the text this morning with a desire to listen to and to heed the warning of what God is trying to tell us about our enemy. Let us approach it this morning with a desire to say, okay, this is a safety briefing, and the battle hinges on whether or not I get the lesson this morning. There are 20 ways. I just went through the scriptures this last week and grabbed off 20 ways, just looked up in a concordance, Satan, and wrote down 20 ways that you can expect Satan to come after you this next week. Number one, he will slander God to you in order to cast doubt on the truth of God's goodness, and as a result, he will try to shipwreck your faith and trust in God. He will tempt you to deceive others in order to create or maintain the impression of being more spiritual than them. He will attempt to corrupt your mind and steer your thinking away from the simplicity of Christ and his gospel. He will physically try to hinder and prevent you from joining with other believers in a life group for fellowship and mutual building up. No joke, look it up. Paul's talking about coming and visiting the church at Thessalonica. And as he's attempting to come and visit the church in Thessalonica, he is prevented. And it says, Satan kept me from doing it. And Satan will attempt to prevent you from joining with other believers, either in Sunday morning worship or in life group midweek. Number five, he will wrestle against you, fighting against your progress and discipleship to be more and more like Jesus. He will tempt you to commit sexual immorality against your spouse. He may harass you with some form of fleshly affliction or disease, and ultimately, this will happen at some point in your life in order to get you to doubt God's goodness. He will try to blind the spiritual eyes of your unsaved family, friends, and neighbors so they may not see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. He will make every effort to keep your unsaved acquaintances in bondage to sin and idols that hinder them from coming to the true God. He may even smite you this week with disease, suffering, illness, and physical torture. He will try to trick you into killing your own children. And he craves also to physically murder you. No joke. Look it up. There is nothing that brings him more happiness than to get parents to take the children whom God has given to them and to kill them. Child sacrifice is prominent all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, he's not just looking to play games with you. He definitely wants to hurt you physically if he can. Number 12, he will sow tares. This can be counterfeit false Christians who are pretending to be sincere or possibly spiritually compromised believers. He will sow tares within this assembly of believers known as Bridge Baptist Church in order to deceive and create disunity. Number 13, he will always lead you toward theological compromise by causing you to be friendly to false doctrine and its teachers. Number 14, he will, with God's permission, persecute you violently because of your godliness. Number 15, he will always, at every opportunity, tempt you to do evil. Number 16, he is, at this moment, prowling about seeking to capture and destroy you, and he takes a special delight in destroying you from your own stubborn, proud, self-exalting heart. Number 17, he will, every single moment he can, slander you before God in heaven and try to convince the Most High that you are not worthy of his efforts to be saved. 
He will, when he especially hates you with particular malice and ferocity, ask God for permission to sift you out for personalized, concentrated attack and nearly irresistible temptation. He will daily, moment by moment, use the power of suggestion, either mental suggestion or the subtle persuasion from unbelieving friends to move you away from the will of God. And he will try to cripple your effectiveness through confusion, discouragement, and ultimately despair. Church, I put all those scripture references up there. You're free to write those down. You can ask me for a copy after the service this morning. Do you suppose that I would be able just that easily to find 20 references that talk about those kinds of dangers if God did not want you to be aware of the enemy that is out there? So let's sober up this morning. Let's pay attention. Let's realize that we are in a struggle. Before we became Christians, we saw the world through a certain set of glasses. Now that we are believers in Jesus, we need to be able to see the things that lurk behind the shadows. Ultimately, Satan knows that if he wants us, if he wants to succeed in getting to us, he's got to succeed in undermining or stopping the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick it up this morning in Matthew chapter 4. It says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now right off the bat, we're, in, we're presented with some interesting information. Jesus has just been baptized. He's just had God the Father testify to the reality that he is God's son. It's this amazing, just a miraculous achievement. It's a real victory in the life of Christ. He's baptized. The Spirit descends. God the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he immediately, immediately says that the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. So he's under the leading of the Holy Spirit. He's following God's will. And immediately God takes him out into the wilderness. What is this wilderness? It's a, probably the worst place you could think of to go. It's a, it's a craggy, just horrible place to be. It, it's described by one uh, commentator this way. The, the, the hills and the rocks, they all twist and turn in various different directions, like they're warped and twisted. The limestone, the ground, almost sometimes has a hollow sound to it when you're walking. There's very little, if any, water. It's just a barren, just dry, deserted wasteland. It's not someplace you'd like to go. And so Jesus, he gets baptized, the Spirit descends on him. He says, this is my son, this is my child, whom I'm well pleased with. And now he takes his own son, his own child, with whom he is well pleased, and he leads him out into a very desert, very barren, very nasty wasteland for the specific purpose of being tested by the tempter. Nice. Awesome. How many of you set your children up to fail? How many of you, with your own children, as a parent, say, I'm going to lure my child into temptation? I'm sure not many of us do. And we're tempted when we look at this passage to look at it the same way. What is this? God the Father, God the Spirit leading God the Son out into a barren wasteland? The Gospel of Mark, pretty clear, it says um, that, you know, it, the word that it uses periosmos, he was impelled. He was driven out there. Um, God wanted him to go out there. 
But we know from James chapter 1, there's a difference between being tested and being tempted, okay? You wouldn't set your own son or daughter up to fail. You're not tempting them to fail. And yet at the same time, most of us in here understand the value of testing. Will my son do as I have asked him to do? You give him instructions, you kind of step back to watch to see what happens. We all send our children to school. They all attain an education of some form. Only the foolish educator would say, I will never test my child to see how much they actually retain of what it is that I've attempted to instill in them. There's testing in education, there's testing at home, there's testing all over the place. We're constantly testing our children, not because we want them to fail, but because we want them to succeed. That's the exact same spirit here. God uses Satan's tempting to evil as his own means of testing for good. That's what we're seeing in this passage here. What Satan intended what Satan intended to lead the son into sin and disobedience, but the father used this in order to demonstrate Jesus' holiness and his worthiness. That's God's plan for all of us in this room today. Well, if God is so good, why does he allow evil and suffering? This is the fundamental question. It's asked all the time. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? The fundamental answer is right here in Matthew chapter 4. God is using this account to demonstrate his son is able to rise above it. His son is able to overcome it. And that's his plan for all of us in this room. Christians cannot be tempted in a way that God cannot use for our good and for his glory. You are not, it is not possible for God to allow you into a temptation that you are incapable of overcoming. Paul makes a statement in Corinthians. No man has entered into any temptation that is not common to all men, and you are never led into a temptation that you are incapable of overcoming. And whenever you're in any temptation, Paul goes on to say, pray to God that he would lead you out of it, that he would provide a way of escape. So you need to know that God never places you in a circumstance where you will fail. That's not how he works as a parent. That's not how you and I work as a parent. And we should never, ever fall victim to the just real subtle slander, slander that we hear sometimes. If God is so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? That's not his motive. That's not his purpose. That's not what he's doing. It says in James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials different kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That is God's plan. That's his purpose for you when you enter into temptation. That's what he's doing here with, with Christ, okay? God allows testing in our lives in order that our spiritual muscles will be exercised, that we'll grow stronger in it. God never tests in the sense of enticing us to do evil. We know this because in James chapter 1, same chapter, same book, a couple of verses a little later on down, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, quote, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Verse 1, right there. He is led into the wilderness, barren, inhospitable wasteland. 
to be tempted by the devil, to be challenged by Satan. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What do you think about that? Let me begin with a question. How many of you fast? Um, You didn't have to raise your hand, sorry. That was a rhetorical question. But that's great that you do. I'm excited for you guys. We'll get more into this later when we get into the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a statement, when you fast, and then he goes on to give directions on how you ought to fast. Not if you fast, but when you fast. Now, we're Baptists. We like potlucks. We like food. We don't fast, okay? But we should. Why? Jesus is fasting. His example should tell us something about what we ought to be doing. Now, what does it mean to fast? Is this some sort of, like, hunger strike? Are we trying to coerce God into giving us what we want, and we know that he really doesn't want to because it's kind of outside his will, or maybe it's, like, right on the edge of his will, and we really, really, really want it, but we know it may not be exactly what he wants, and so we want to try and, you know, get him to give in to us. So, like, spoiled children, we're going to say, well, fine, I'm not going to eat until you give me what I want. And so we starve ourselves until we get what we want. Is that kind of the idea of fasting? A lot of Christians actually tend to look at it that way, as though if we can just get hungry enough, God will look down and be like, this poor sucker, he's not going to eat unless I do what he wants me to do, and I don't want him to die, so I'm going to go ahead and give in to his plans. Listen, if that's your perspective on fasting, you have absolutely no idea what fasting is about. God is not at any moment bound to give in to whatever silly notion you want, ever. And if you want to starve yourself to death, He's fine letting you do that. Fasting does not change God's will. He will never step away from being holy, from being perfect, from giving us exactly what we need, no matter how much you starve yourself, okay? So if some of you are here and you're like, well, I was really hoping to win the lotto, and I've been, I've been fasting for the last month. I mean, the, the pot is it's getting up there. FYI, probably not going to win the lotto, and you're just going to get hungry, Okay? You cannot move God's will. He is never going to give you whatever is contrary to what he desires. It doesn't matter how much you starve yourself. So then what is the purpose of fasting? What are we doing here? When we fast, what kind of behavior are we engaging in? The purpose of fasting, in, Je- in Jeremiah 17.9, Prophet Jeremiah makes an interesting statement. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? You and I aren't just prone to being self-deceived. We probably are on some level. We're not just open to deception. On some level, we are self-deceived. It's possible, it's probable. The Bible says that you know people are self-deceived. The only one that's really capable of seeing through all of the self-deception that we build in our own lives is God. Fasting is a means not so much as to move God's will to conform to your will, but to change your perspective and to change the manner of your praying. Hunger is intended to cause you to pause and to pray. But hunger also, when you get hunger pains, when you've been fasting, Hunger has an incredible way of sobering the mind. 
elevating your perspective and bringing you to a place to where you can see yourself the way that God sees you. So in that regard, fasting is a means that creates an environment in which you can expose those nitty-gritty layers of your heart that are prone to self-deception. You can unfold those so that God can see it and show it to you. Fasting is not intended to move the will of God so much as it is intended to change our praying. So why is Jesus fasting? I mean, he's God. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's never done anything wrong. Why is Jesus fasting? He goes out into the wilderness under the leading of the Holy Spirit. He is fasting for 40 days. Now, all the medical research suggests that you can't go much longer in 40 days. I mean, he's right at the ragged edge. He's at the threshold of physical survivability. He's there because the Holy Spirit led him there. He is doing what God the Father and God the Spirit have led him to do. I think that the means, the reason for his fasting is so that he would foster greater reliance upon the Father in order to prepare him for his ministry and to equip him to deal with the temptation that he would face. Look at Satan's statement here, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, right off the bat, just pause for a second. I need to clarify the text a little bit. If you're reading from King James, New King James, NAS, ESV, or any of the commonly accepted translations, they will all render this verse, if. I can only conclude that the reason that they do that is because that's the way the King James did it. Because every single scholar out there, including many of the same scholars who worked on the translation of the NAS and the ESV, will say that this is a third-class conditional clause. Satan is not in doubt about who Christ is. And when he begins this conversation with Jesus, he doesn't express doubt. He doesn't say, if you're the Son of... Prove it. He's not saying, prove to me that you're the Son of God. When we read this passage, we tend to read it and we're like, oh, well, he's trying to get him to prove that he's the Son of God. But that's not what he's doing here. better way to translate a third-class conditional clause from the Greek is to render it this way. Since you are the Son of God. Satan isn't coming to Jesus and be like, I don't believe it. Prove it to me. Show me who you are. Turn these loaves into bread. He is stating it as a fact. He is worshiping Jesus in this moment. He is attributing to him his true identity. Satan knows who he is, and he knows that Jesus knows who he is. He's not trying to pull a fast one on Jesus, get Jesus to doubt his own identity. He's not trying to get Christ to prove to him who he is. He knows who he is. And when he comes to him, he tempts him. It's just a matter of it's a foregone conclusion. I know you are the Son of God. I mean, if he didn't really know that Jesus was the Son of God, and he were to say to, you, say to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, you know, prove it, turn these bread into loaves, Jesus could say, well, if I'm not the Son of God, and I just think that I am, why are you, the greatest of all tempters, wasting your time with a lowly old self-deceived guy like me? 
It doesn't make a lot of logic. It doesn't make a lot of logical sense, does it? Why is Satan coming out to Jesus, trying to convince Jesus to prove to him that he's Jesus? That's not what he's saying. Since I know it, and you know it, since everybody here is in agreement that you are God, that you are the Son of God, and you're really, really hungry because you haven't had anything to eat for 40 days now. You know what? You've been fasting a long time now. You've done a great job fasting. I'm really impressed by your spiritual superiority here. 40 days, that's, that's amazing. You know what? You're tired, you're hungry, you're weak. I'm about to start tempting you. You should probably eat something. It's going to get intense. Go ahead. Turn some of these, these stones into bread. Now, for you and me, if we were there in that situation, first off, I would never have been there in that situation. 40 days, are you kidding me? I don't think I'd ever have gotten there. But if it's you or me, and we're fasting, and we've gone 40 days, and Satan comes to you and says, okay, it's going to get really tough here in a second. Come on, have a little food. You know, I'd buy in. I'd be like, yeah, no, I need to get ready for that. That's about to happen. Yeah, yeah, let's have some bread. Let's sit down. Let's break our fast. Let's end our fast, and let's, let's get ready for the next battle that's coming. And I'm sure most of you would too. It doesn't even really seem like a temptation, does it? I mean, I know who you are. You know who you are. Let's eat some bread. I mean, you can turn the stones into bread. It's not like you're having to go consult some sort of magical, divine, kind of supernatural, superstitious kind of, you know, spirits. This isn't like some sort of new age thing, you know, let's, let's do some hocus pocus and try. No, I know you're God. I know that you have the power of just creating stuff out of thin air. I know that you can turn stones into bread. You know who you are. I know who you are. You as God with a power to perform miracles, which you will use throughout the next three years of your ministry, a power to which you are entitled to have, a power which is yours by virtue of the fact that you are God, it's no big deal. Let's whip out some bread. It doesn't seem like a temptation, does it? It doesn't seem in any regard like Satan's really putting all that much on Jesus. I mean, over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, he will. He will use his powers. He will heal people. He will raise people from the dead. He will feed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes just from a little kid's basket, just a couple of little loaves of bread and a couple of little fishes there. So what is the big deal? I mean, Jesus, really, come on. Give it in. You're hungry, man. You've been, you've been fasting. That's how good Satan is. Just stop for a second and realize. On its surface, this doesn't look like that big of a temptation, does it? In fact, you really would never have understood exactly what was going on here if you didn't see Jesus' response. You and I, if we just completely eliminated the response of Christ and just looked at it on its surface coming from Satan, that's how clever he is. That's how good he is. What's the big deal? Rock to bread. You are not capable of understanding the temptation in your life. If you do not take every experience, every inclination, every well-phrased word of encouragement from every well-meaning 
unbelieving friend you might have. You are not capable of discerning the temptation in your life if you do not step back and scrutinize it through Jesus' perspective. I tell you right now, none of Satan's temptation makes any sense. It doesn't even look like a temptation until you see it from the eyes of Christ. So what's his response? Well, he says, it is written. And really draw out the meaning of that statement. What he's really saying there is it stands forever written. God has spoken. Something has been said. It is immovable. It is fixed. It is unchanging. In other words, there's a frame of reference I have here as I'm evaluating your well-meaning, supposedly, advice. There is a frame of reference I have here to evaluate what you're saying. It has been written. Jesus' response to Satan's temptation is to sit there and say, I need to filter all of this guy's advice, all of his suggestions. I need to take all of that, and I need to look at it through the lens of Scripture. And that's what he does. It stands written. Well, what's he going to quote? Deuteronomy 8. He's going to say, he's going to quote Deuteronomy 8.3, and it's going to say, man, look at how he phrases this here. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you look at Deuteronomy 8.3 in its original context in the Old Testament, this is what it says. It says there, and he humbled you, and this is God speaking to the Israelites. Okay? They've been brought out of Egypt. They've gone through this 40-year wilderness wanderings. And Moses is speaking to the Israelites under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what will become Scripture, the book of Deuteronomy. And he makes this statement. He, referencing God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor your fathers knew, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes. Now look at this. Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Did you see that? You look at Matthew, he says, man's going to live by every word that comes from the mouth of, of God. Deuteronomy says, from the mouth of the Lord. If Jesus comes to Satan and says, Satan, can't do it. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that Yahweh speaks. But aren't you Yahweh? Oh, yeah. Don't you have it within yourself, being Yahweh? I mean, the verse you're quoting to me, Jesus says, man will live by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh, from the second person of the Trinity, from you. Now, you're you, are you not? Yes, I am. Well, why don't you just make some bread? Hey, that's a great idea. You know what? I can do this. I, I have it within my power to do this. So Jesus, in his response to Satan, changes the quotation ever so slightly. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but he will live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I know that this seems like I'm picking straws with you guys, but think about this for a second. Jesus is a distinct person, but he's also a part of the Trinity. He is one, but he is also a part of the three. When he quotes this passage of Scripture, he's not radically altering the meaning of the passage, 
but he is altering it ever so slightly to take the focus off of him as the second person of the Trinity and to put it on the Trinity as a whole. In other words, man doesn't just live off of bread alone, but by every word that comes from the triune God. That's his response to Satan. And it's kind of interesting. Two things emerge from this. One, Jesus' action, his behavior, is going to be consistent with the Trinity's will. And we see that from verse 1 where he says here, he was led up by the Spirit. Now, as God the Father, I'm sorry, as God the Son, he has the full will to do whatever he wants, but yet he will voluntarily subject his will to do the will of the Father. And when temptation comes, you see from his example here that he doesn't just respond out of his own initiative. He doesn't just respond to Satan based on what he wants to say. Now, everything Jesus wants to say is exactly what the Trinity wants to say. But when he responds to Satan, he puts it back on the Trinity. Gregory of, early church father Gregory of Nonsense made a powerful statement. He said, I cannot think on the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being straightway carried back to the one. Herman Bovink made this statement. The great challenge facing us is to see that the unity of the Trinity does not cancel out the persons of the Trinity, or conversely, that the Trinity of persons does not abolish the unity of the divine essence. They are three, but they are one. And when Satan comes to Jesus, think about this for a second. As the second person of the Trinity, he's never been hungry, he's never been tired, he's never been thirsty. He's never had to walk. And here he is taking on the flesh of a man, subjecting his will to the will of the Father, being led out into the wilderness where he is fasting. And Satan comes to him to attack him at his humanity. You're hungry. Why don't you do something to address that hunger. But if he gives in to the cravings of the human side of him, he breaks rank with the Trinity. That's how subtle the temptation is. I know the Holy Spirit has led you out here. I know the Holy Spirit is in charge of your wandering through the wilderness. Why don't you take something to eat? Immediately, the question is not so much, is it right to eat? Is it right to turn stones into bread? Is it right to placate myself, to satisfy my hunger? Here I am on the threshold of dying, 40 days fasting. That's not the issue. The issue is, I was led out here by the Holy Spirit. I was led out here by the Trinity. Am I going to keep faith with them, or will I break ranks with them in order to satisfy my hunger? That's the issue. So he quotes this passage from Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 3. Now Moses is talking to the Israelites. These are guys that were living in slavery in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt. They run out of food. There's no water. They start to gripe. They start to cry. They start to complain. We saw all of that when we were working our way through the book of Exodus. 
And Moses, years later, as he's preaching to them, reflecting on those experiences, he says there was a reason for it. God did this to you so that you would learn that it's not as important what you eat as it is who you listen to. That's really the nature of Satan's strategy. He's trying to do two things. One, he wants you to doubt God. He wants you to not trust God. He wants you to not believe in God. Two, he wants you to trust in yourself. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, self-reliance. In other words, he's trying to get you away from depending on God and depending on yourself. That is the nature of everything he's trying to do. Every temptation, every lie, every deception, every circumstance, every painful encounter, all of that is to bring you to a place to where you no longer trust what God is saying. And you start to rely on your own assessment and you try to approach your circumstances from self-reliance. Are you hungry? No worries. Go out and hunt and kill something. Stop following that cloud of pillar, that, that cloud of fire, the pillar of smoke. Jesus, you hungry? No worries. Just stop following the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Just take matters into your own hands. Rely on yourself. He's trying to separate Christ away from the Trinity. And what he's trying to do in your life He's trying to separate you away from God. It's easier to kill someone when you can isolate them. There is strength in numbers. And what he's trying to do is to get you to wander away from God the Father and the rest of your family. That's what he's trying to do. Cast doubt on the Father, cast doubt on God, get you to trust in yourself. We all live from the heart, every single one of us in this room. What I mean by that is, in every single circumstance, there are physical things that happen on the outside. Situations you can't control. Things that happen that you didn't see them coming. You couldn't have predicted them, even if you wanted to. What's important in each of those situations is not really the circumstances of those situations, but how you are going to respond to those circumstances. Your response is determined by what is on the inside. We all live from the heart. We all have this thing called a spirit or a soul. This spirit and this soul exists. And here's the other truth. It's been formed a certain way. It is undeniable. We all have a spirit. We all have a soul. And the second truth is, from the moment of our birth, that spirit, that soul, whatever you want to refer to it as, has taken on a particular shape. It's been formed. We encountered circumstances. We encountered certain events in our life based on whatever information we had at that time, based on whether or not we even had a relationship with God, based on whether or not we knew anything from the Bible. We had made certain decisions. We made certain assessments based on whatever limited information we had. We made decisions to respond to certain circumstances based on what we knew at that time. That 
process of making certain choices, responding to certain things, that process is how your soul and your spirit has been formed. And now Romans 12, 1 and 2 says you have to be transformed. Everything you've done has developed a certain habit, a certain pattern in your life. And before you became a believer, that whole habit, that whole pattern of living was basically built on the premise, I am my own boss, I am smart enough to figure this out, I know what it is I'm dealing with, and therefore I will weigh it on my own, make decisions on my own, and respond how I see fit. And Christ's example here is, no, that's not going to work. It is precisely that proud, I can figure this out, pull myself up by my own bootstraps. It is that proud self-assessment. That's exactly what he's looking for. Because here's the truth. You will never be smarter than Satan. You will never, ever be able to figure out just exactly what it is that he's doing unless you weigh and consider everything through the lens of Scripture. That's what Christ is saying here. That's the truth you need to learn today. He knows to a large degree. I mean, we are all of us fallen. We have limited memory. Like, we forget stuff. I forget stuff that happens to me. I can't remember. Truthfully, I don't even remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. Okay? He's not plagued by those same realities. He has observed your life from day one to now. He knows choices you're going to make. He has a pretty reliable pattern. I know whenever Josh is in this particular situation, this is how he's going to respond. And so he can structure the temptation just perfectly to get me to separate myself away from God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Separate me from my church family, from people who love me, who are capable of seeing things that I'm blinded to. He's trying to separate me, isolate me out from the rest of the group because when I'm isolated, it's way easier for him to get me. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. And yet, what do we have going on in our society today, guys? I'm going to go home. I'm going to watch my TV. I'm going to fill my mind with all that junk that's on television, all that garbage that is completely contrary to the will of God. I'm going to put that stuff in, and it's not going to phase me. I know what the Bible is saying, and I'm going to watch all this stuff, but I, you know, I'm going to enjoy it, and it's going to be entertaining, but you know, I'll still be a good Christian. What do you think is really going to happen when the cards are down, when the chips are on the table, when it's all on the line? What are you going to go to? If you have consistently, because he's that good, and he's tempted you and walked you down this path to form your character a certain way, if you have, in every minor, small, trivial situation, made choices and got into a habit, a pattern of assessing things, doing things, watching TV shows, engaging in certain behaviors, and never once stopped to scrutinize that behavior or that activity from God's perspective, and never once stopped to say, is this right? Maybe I shouldn't even do this. If you've never, ever done that, if you've never, ever formed that as a part of your spiritual response to the circumstances in your life, Satan's happy. This is what I want. He's not even stopping to think about what... So I'm going to give him this, and see, it was fun the first time. And now I'm going to let him do that. See, it was even better the second time. And now I'm going to... And you, saw, you see, over and over and over again, and he doesn't even see it coming. Now I've got him right where I want him. And now I'm going to hit him right where he won't see it coming. 
and his heart and his soul has been formed and shaped to respond exactly how I want him to. Be wary, church. Be scared. Be alert. You're never going to be as smart as him. You're never going to have as much time as he's going to have. You don't even have the element of surprise on your side. He will get to choose the time and the place of your testing. Not you. Not you. And he will get you unless you do what the son did, which was to step back and say, what do the scriptures have to say about this? What does God want me to do in response to this? So if you are being tested, a couple of things. Know that the scriptures offer you a way out. They do. It's in Corinthians. If any of you find yourselves being tempted beyond what you're able to bear, pray to God, ask him for the way out. For a lot of you, you know what that's going to look like? You're going to have to put yourselves into the hands of your brothers and sisters. We're just not possible sometimes to break certain addictions on our own. You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to stop thinking you've got what it takes to beat the enemy because on your own, you don't. So it's going to require that you draw closer to your family. And it's going to have to require that in humility, you just admit, hey, this is the addiction I got in my life. This is the struggle that I'm fighting with. I thought I could beat it on my own, but I can't. After 20 years of fighting against this particular temptation, I cannot beat it. And the funny thing is, as soon as you confess, as soon as you seek help, as soon as the light is exposed, he has to flee back to the shadows. I can't promise you instantaneous deliverance. You will struggle until the day you die. What I can promise you is that day by day, if you give it over to the Lord and respond to temptations the way he prescribes, put yourself into the hands of your family, you will experience victory. Whatever t a temptation or addiction, we can free you from that. But don't think that that means he's never coming back. If it's something you struggle with today, odds are you beat it, he'll recycle that back to the back of the playbook, He'll try something different tomorrow. You beat that one, he'll recycle that one back to the playbook, and he'll try something different the next day. You will never be free from him. You will never be safe from him as long as you're on your own, away from the word, and living in this world. Safety is found in the church, it's found with Jesus, and it's found with your brothers and sisters. As long as you're in this lifetime, he will come after you. Now, years and years and years ago, in the States, it was outlawed. Alcohol was outlawed. Prohibition. It passed a constitutional amendment that said we will no longer tolerate alcohol in our country. There was a man who had made his whole living running a bar. Came to faith in the Lord, gave his heart to Christ. Prohibition passed. The United States government said we will no longer tolerate alcohol will no longer tolerate the sale of alcohol. It is prohibited. 
One day, a pastor was walking downtown. He went to visit his old friend. The store, the bar, had been converted to a clothing store. He opened the door and just walked in, and in the process saw this man, shady deal, taking money and handing over a bottle of liquor. Customer took his alcohol and walked away. Pastor just sat there, said, John, I've come to visit you. Man's response was, Pastor, man's got to make a living somehow. The response is worth noting. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. You don't have to make a living. You don't have to feed yourself. You don't have to have dinner tonight. Man does not live on bread, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You don't have to live. You can die. What's important is that in the living, you live the way God wants you to. I don't know if you've ever seen junkyard dog. I haven't really seen many junkyards around Kamloops. I'm trying to fix, I drove as a teenager a beat up 1986 Chevy S10 Blazer, piece of junk. Thing wouldn't run no matter how hard I worked on it. I was always having to go to the scrapyard, junkyard to get parts. There are these two dogs there. They chained them up during the day, but they let them wander during the night. Junkyard dogs, Doberman pinchers, half starved, mean. Scared me right out. I mean, I, you'd walk in, they got these things over here in the corner. They'd bark and hiss and spit and kind of pull at their chains. And the way it works is you go, you get your part, you take it off the car, and you pay for it, and you go. I was always doing this because my car was always breaking down. I've got an expression in this. Very common. A lot of people say it. It's a dog-eat-dog world. In other words, I got to do what I got to do to get by. I got to survive. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Now, that expression, that's straight from Satan. He wants you to be the mean junkyard dog. He wants you to think you're half-starved. He wants you to believe that you got to tear and claw and kill the guy next to you in order to get ahead. That's what he wants you to think. But what you need to know, it's not a dog-eat-dog world. It's a roaring lion-eat-isolated-sheep world. He wants nothing better for you to think that you've got to scrap and fight to get ahead because then he can turn you on each other. It is not a dog-eat-dog world. It is a roaring, satanic, lion-eating-sheep kind of world. And the only way you're going to beat it is if you stay close to the chief shepherd. Where are you at, church, in drawing near to him? Are you making the shepherd's job easy? Are you making it tough? Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we love you. And we thank you. We thank you, God, that we we need to learn a healthy fear, but not a hopeless fear. We need to be mindful of our adversary, but not terrified. And we thank you that your son was able to resist the temptations as strong as they were, and that he showed us the way. 
where if we would follow after him, we could also beat those same temptations. God, I just pray this morning, if there are any here who are struggling in any addiction, that they would know, God, that Satan's ultimate outcome is for them to die in that addiction. I pray, God, that you would drive it home to them this morning as they are here in this room, that they will never win on their own that they're on a path that they cannot break isolated from the church and from you. I pray, God, that you would just give them the courage and the humility, Lord, to seek help, to break free, and to draw close. God, I pray for the other members in this church who are, for the most part, staying true to your word and staying true to you. I pray, Lord, that they would not be lifted up in arrogance or pride because that's a subtle trick right there from the enemy as well. I pray, Lord, that we would have a heart and a spirit in this room among these brothers and sisters to welcome anyone and everyone regardless of the struggle and to help them, Lord. God, I just pray, Lord, that you would expose our adversaries' ever, every effort to our eyes and give us the wisdom and the discernment we need to see how he is winning and where we are failing. God, let your people break free from him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.